confirmed all of you know years and years of of what I now know to be imposter yeah. phenomenon. This idea I shouldn't be doing this. Someone's going to catch me out. You know, I'm I am other. Everybody else is better than me. I need to be perf- you know perfect in order to make sure that I can keep up. Welcome to another episode of Spotlight with Terry Simpkin, Professor at Nottingham University. Terry is an expert in the field of imposter syndrome. This is a great episode for anybody to listen to who may be suffering with this, as there are ways of managing it and overcoming it, which Terry discusses with us at length. Worst job you've ever done? Worst job? I worked in a, in a toothpaste factory. Yeah. Um, for the money, yeah. <laughs> I thought I'll go and uh, and and earn some money. It was pretty much straight out of school. My best friend's dad worked in the Colgate factory in uh, in Melbourne, Victoria, in Australia, and he said, "Well, they're looking for some casual staff. Why don't you come along?" And it, there were people there who'd been there for twenty, thirty years and were absolutely absolutely engaged with their work. They loved what they did. It was not for me at all. Um, you know watching packets of toothpaste go past for hours a day and then working on the body spray line and that sort of stuff. I've just gone like So I had my interview on the Monday. I started on the Tuesday and I quit on the Wednesday. Oh, wow, well, one day. Yeah, one day. well, yeah, two and a half days. Two and a half days. I, a similar thing, I stuck it out a bit longer than you. I worked in a bakery to pay for uni. Yeah. At a POVIS factory and it was awful. Yeah. It was... I don't know how people did it for 20 well, seconds. All power to people who, who can do it, oh, to yeah. be honest, because if they didn't, we wouldn't have toothpaste <laughs> yeah. and bakery goods, presumably. But um, it, it, I, it, it was mind-numbing. I, I just, I, it was a really good learning experience for me to say, A, this is not for me, and I, I need to have something else going yeah. on here, even though it was relatively well-paid. For, for what the work was. Yeah, the bakery was well paid for what yeah. you were doing. It, was paid, it, paid, it paid for university. So you're talking your blog about being from a, a working class background, Lund, uh, East, East London, East London, Walthamstow. Okay. Mm. Um, that the way that you talk about it, it doesn't sound like it's a, it was a chip on your shoulder. It sounds very much like a motivation. Yeah, it wasn't a chip on my shoulder, and. I don't really see it as a chip on my shoulder, to be honest, but it, it was never a problem until I went to Australia. Okay. Mainly because, again, I was sort of living in this echo chamber. We, we, um, I lived in um, one of the those social experiment tower blocks things. Yeah, you know, where pretty horrific then. It was horrific. Well, it's so horrific they pulled them down. Yeah. It, you know, they needed to, to sort of get rid of the blight um, that came along with it. And so... So we were surrounded by the same sort of people. So I'd never known anything else. And then we moved to Colchester to a, to a, um, a, a council estate there. And again, in fact, we moved with a lot of people out of the out of the tower block as well. So the same sorts of families. And I really didn't know anything else until I got to Australia. And then it hit me that I am so different to what was what I had been used to. Um, not because necessarily of the of the class but the distinction that I was other and then it started to to sort of um, permeate the the way I saw the world and um, whilst Australia and um, the UK are sort of seen as being very similar speak 
similar sort of languages, um, have the same sorts of, of, of culture, it is actually really very different the way that they come to, to the world. And um, so it was then when I, I noticed my otherness. And, um, and then when I was studying for my PhD, ironically, I was looking at uh, precursors to occupational choice. And it, a huge amount of literature on working class and how working class people end up in certain roles because of... Predefined for them. It is predefined. Yeah. It, 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 you know, they don't necessarily have the same access to implicit privileges that, that um, you know, middle class or, or um, upper class people do. And it sh struck me fair between the eyes, I shouldn't be doing this. And it, it was it was almost you know quite shocking to me. And I, I remember ringing my ex husband and saying, "I should be doing this PhD." And he said, "You've only just worked this out. <laughs> why, why didn't somebody tell me?" Because I was reading all of this stuff, saying, "Yeah, the plausibility of of, of you actually a going to university in the first place and b being offered a place in you know in a PhD program and having it paid for by the government." And everything just sort of collapsed at, at that point. It was just, I, I really shouldn't be doing this. And it confirmed all of, you know, years and years of, of what I now know to be imposter yeah. phenomenon and this idea, I shouldn't be doing this, someone's going to catch me out. You know, I'm, I am other, everybody else is better than me. I need to be perf you know, perfect in order to make sure that I can keep up. And um, that's where it really became clear that, you know, class plays a, a role. Um, I'd sort of come across gender, you know, discrimination, you know, and misogyny and that sort of gear before. Um, and then there was sort of the intersectionalities of all that. But I don't think it was ever a chip. It, it just, it just, it's this plausibility piece yeah. that we have in a, in a social narrative that yeah. says it's implausible that you should be there. Therefore, you make you try and make that story true by dismissing any of the success you have or the capability that you might develop. Um, and so, so social class is one of those things that is really, or the perception of social class is really insidious. Well, so by the time I got to halfway through um, uh, a high school, um, I got had got so sick of trying to be, you know, the, the straight A student that I always. Well, I mean, I always was, always and, and it was yeah. like, well, you know, it's, it's, I'm not getting any, it wasn't like I wasn't getting any recognition for it, it's just that if I let it slip, that was a catastrophe. And so that sort of set up this idea of you can't fail type of thing. And so um, I got so bored with, with school um, that I, I went completely off the rails, we you know, turned into a goth and just spent spend most of my time um, hanging around outside hotels waiting for famous people to arrive. Um, do you remember Countdown when you were in yeah. Australia? So it was like Top of the Pops. Yeah. Spent inordinate amounts of time yeah. outside of, of, of Countdown waiting for Simon Le Bon and Sibley yeah. and all sorts of people. Um, but still managed to get, you know, Eight. high marks because it was like, you know, I'm just going to bash it out and... and um, but yeah, I thought I thought if I'm going to be perceived as other, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right to the extreme and be about as other as you could get in the environment that I was in. Blog posts, I think I, I did for you. I said um, yeah, one of the bits of advice is know when to give up, and it's not no not give up on what you want to do, but know when you're on your 
of your journey, as you put it, on your path, know when to let things go and try a different way of doing things. Yeah. You know, fail fast, learn fast. Yeah. So this idea that, you know, subscribing to the status quo in order to achieve a certain end, it's not the only way of doing it. There are other ways, and if you take that other way, then often it will ping you off into a, a much more satisfying and often more successful route rather than you know taking the, the, the road most travelled. And the, prep- the, the ability to be prepared to fail has served me quite well uh, in the sense that I'm not scared of it. Yeah. I, it, it doesn't seem, I think one of the things that I see with the grads that apply here, if they don't get the job, it's often their first failure. Yeah, I, I, I've always been absolutely petrified of failure. And again, that's part of this whole IP thing, imposter phenomenon and stuff. But um, yeah, failure, it's not an option, not because I want to succeed, but I, I, I can't fail because someone will tap me on the shoulder and say, terribly sorry, someone's made a mistake, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, and there is the proof because you've not done, you know, you know a, a stellar job. You yeah. Know, yeah, it's not just not just good enough, it has to be. It has to be perfect. And that is really quite, um, I mean, you get deranged by doing that all, all the time. It's not healthy for you. So this idea of, of managing failure is really important. And this is quite a personal question. Uh, feel free to tell me to go and tell me to my business. But it sounds like um, you've uh, it sounds like you've probably overcome mental challenges that are directly relating to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's what started me on the the path of looking at imposter phenomenon. I'll give I'll tell you a story of how I actually got to that. I told you about the 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 PhD thing shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And I was convinced, like you, convinced that I had made it on into the program because someone had made a mistake. And that at some point along the the, the you know, three or four years that I was going to be doing this thing, someone would say, yeah, you, know, you should be doing this. And I would just quietly go away and, you know, they'd give the money back to the government and it would be good. Absolutely convinced that was the case. It wasn't, oh, I've got a bit of self-doubt. I'm not quite sure whether I could do it. Absolutely convinced I shouldn't be there. Anyway, so it came time to actually hand the thing in. And I drove to the university to, to you know, take it into the um, to the office where I needed to, to submit the, uh, the thing. And um, I couldn't get out of my car. It was, one, it, it was just, when I get out of this car, and if I hand this thing in, it's out in the world, and then I'm going to be... I'm really going to be found out, and it was it was really debilitating. I thought, Shh, what am I going to do? I've, you know, I'm going to have to pay back all this money to the government. I've, you, know, I, you know, all of my supervisors are going to be absolutely, you know, embarrassed. What am I going to tell my family? My friends know I've been doing this for for, for four odd years. <laughs> what am I? What am I going to do? And I was absolutely, I, I was absolutely distraught because I I thought, once this is out there, that's me done. I'm, I'm, it's yeah. finished. Um, fortunately, I did hand it in, but like you, it you know it came back clearly. I'm Doctor Terry Simpson now. <laughs> yeah, it's very so happy, right, yeah. you know, And but the the um, my supervisors rang me in um, and said, uh, uh, "Congratulations, Doctor Alexis. Can you you know your PhD's come back?" And I've gone, "No, really. What's what's happened?" <laughs> and cause I thought that they were joking. Uh. And uh, he said, "No, it's, it's come back." I said, "Well, what they what do they want me to fix?" And he said, well, well, there's the thing. And I thought, oh, here it comes. 
it, you know, you, there could be a whole bunch of rework that um, you know the, the external examiners have suggested that it's a, it's a pile of rubbish. Um, and he said, "There's nothing to fix. Wow. They want you to fix the numbering system. They didn't like your index." I've <laughs> got you kidding. And I seriously had had no idea that it was going to be a you know, received as well as it was. But B, I thought it was the end, end of my career. I thought that I would be vilified for being a fake. I thought that I'd be owing the government <laughs> yeah, a shed load of cash. Um, and and I went home, I thought, I can't be the only person who thinks like this. But that has led, with hindsight, it led to stress. It led to anxiety. I was treated for depression. Um, because of this, I shouldn't be here. Someone's going to tap me on the shoulder. And there's always this trying to keep ahead of being called out as a failure. And that is, you know, I've since obviously been talking to people all over the world who, who have had this similar Same experience. Day, yeah. um, that is what's yet really sad because at some point people will say, I'm done. I can't keep this running ahead of being found out. Um, and as you said, it's an absolute conviction. It's not fishing for compliments. It's not, oh, if I pretend that I'm not good, then people won't have the same expectations and therefore I'll get away with not being good. It's actually an absolute conviction that whilst they've got a track record of success, they've got a huge amount of potential and they clearly have got the capability, they don't, they don't internalise that. And that is really damaging for, for people people who, who experience imposter phenomenon is that deep down inside in their quiet moments they actually know that that they could do they can do these things that they've got the capability but they can't make it happen out in the world and that's the really tragic thing because people might sit there thinking you know what I, if only I had the opportunity to do this if only that I had you know, some um, entree into to this other thing might be you know progression in career, it could be you know, making films, it could be doing PhDs, it could be anything. But they've got this fear that, that once they get that, they're going to fall on their, on their face. And so that's where we start to look at this as a social thing and that that's where that social class narrative comes in. Yeah. You shouldn't be there. The, you know, there there's there's no women in this space, therefore you shouldn't be there. Yeah. There's no people from a from an Asian background, for example, in this space, therefore you shouldn't be there. So this this privilege that people just take for granted is pushing up against this it's this internal narrative that says I shouldn't be there. And so that's where IP sort of starts to to emerge. It's it's a social thing. It's not something that just exists it, it, yeah, up here. It's a social thing. Yeah. And Michelle Obama has talked about you know her issues around. Um, she called it imposter syndrome. It's, it's not a syndrome. It's a phenomenon. Um, and but she says you know it's not something that goes away. You just have to live with it. And that is so wrong. It's a learned thing. Therefore, you can unlearn unlearn it. it. Yeah, unlearn it. And so once you actually get to grips with what triggers it, where it comes from, what what voices of you are you hearing when you are saying to people, "I can't do that," or "or I shouldn't be here," because they're voices that are coming from somewhere back in in your formative years, and they've, they've imprinted themselves on that narrative. So I'm picking that, and it can be really painful. It can be really quite, you know. Um, it was painful. It, it was painful for me. Yeah, it was really painful because yeah. you have to go back and you and you have to start unpicking these things that people who love you. Have, have 
set up for you and you have to bang up against that and say no that's that's not how it's going to be anymore um, and often you you really need to get quite conscious about unpicking that before it actually diminishes but it can go away I think that you know this idea that you have to go to university to get a job that is a, that is a fundamentally flawed way of looking at what university is for university really should be to give you the options that are, are available to you that you know university shouldn't be just about vocations no. or, or occupations. It should be about making people well-rounded citizens that are able to critique what's going on in the world around them, which goes back to your point when we were talking earlier, that you know all of this you know, social media, this digital um, uh, information, all this sort of gear can lead people down a rabbit hole because they can't differentiate robust fact from... A hyperbole and and fabricated truth, truth in, in yeah. So if you're if you're teaching people to be critical, regardless of whether it's in volcanology, whether it's in geography, whether it's in economics, whether it's in arts or whatever it might be in anything else, if you're teaching people to be critical, you're less likely to have a population that is unable to differentiate one from the other. But we've gone down, you know, the Western world has gone down this path of you have to go to university in order to get a job. Well, how about go to university to become a better human being? Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think we've, we've lost a lot of that, which is a real shame because it means that we're now in, in positions where people are getting into leadership and they don't necessarily have the capacity to run businesses in a human way. They're only referring back to you know, straight up and down economics or accounting or you know, bog standard marketing or you know, by the book process HR. Whereas what we should be doing is giving people the opportunity to be critical and actually move around in that space while they're still picking up capabilities to do stuff, but do stuff in a way that comes from them being a good human, being a good citizen. Do you think that we are going through a real change in... Obviously, we've got COVID-19, which is happening right now, which is... But that's, and I think that that's having a, a cataclysmic effect on leadership. Yeah. And um, do you think that that change, what, how, what is your perception of, of that change? What's your perception of the change that is happening now? That would be really fascinating to understand that. You're right. People are thinking oh, all of this stuff is changing because of COVID. No. It's been brought to a head because yes. of COVID. All of the stuff that is starting to, to bubble to the surface as a real issue because of COVID was on the agenda before. Things like hollowing out of the workforce because of digital technologies, AI, um, automation, all that sort of gear. Understanding that a big proportion of the world's labour is going to be displaced by this stuff. I'm not one of those people who believes that tech will come to the rescue and pick up all of these people who are going to be displaced. Unlike previous industrial revolutions, it's happening too quickly. Yeah. We had time to yeah. sort that out one way or another. Some people, of course, were disenfranchised. Um, but it, it, the time frame that we had for previous ones was a, a bit more elongated, yeah, 100 or so years. Now this has happened you know, in the last 20 years, really, and it's ramping up. The, 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 the capacity of, of our, our tech to forge new industries very, very quickly. I mean, you would know that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Didn't, I mean this, this wouldn't have been around 30 years ago. So um, 
we're just not being able to keep up. We're not being able to retrain people. We're not being able to redeploy them. And certainly those manual jobs that are sort of going out the window are not going to be there for people. So it's not as if you can take somebody from, say, you know, from, a, from, from one manual job and put them into a job that has just been created in digital infrastructure because the skills and capabilities yeah. are mismatched. Some people will be picked up, but anyway, aside from that, Things around, or arguments around leadership, this idea of, of you know, charismatic leaders, people who are out there, the Elon Musk, the, the um, uh, Steve Jobs going back a bit, you know, these people who are, who are out there and, and larger than life and it's all about me, the business is all about me. We've been questioning that and we're moving much more towards capability rather than charisma that we're looking for people who can actually make good decisions based on good data, based on good values. And so that idea around leaders being much more human, being much more compassionate, being less about the, the strong and stable and I have all the decisions and you know it's my money, therefore we'll do what I want and we'll strip the resources out of this small country over here because we can. It's much more about let's have a look at the social good. And I think that is starting to bubble to the surface now, particularly what's going on in the US. But you're seeing the rise of people like Jacinda Ardern, for example. I was about to say, it's a shame she can't run for the US. I think, that, forget, the, forget the US, I just think she oh, should be a bene benevolent dictator for the world. Global leader. I just, I just yeah. think, you know, she should do it. The, the, the fact that she's being seen as sort of a new age sort of type of leader is belying the fact that these conversations have been being had for a long time. It's just that it's been catalyzed. Do you, it's really, I can 100% agree with you. It's really interesting, it depends where you read on the internet, but this was always supposed to happen. It just happened that this virus came along and it that made it happen. But this was always... It, it was always on it the cards. The these yes. conversations were yeah. starting to be had. I, and yeah. I, I remember standing in, in front of a bunch of CEOs and we were talking about this stuff and looking at the economics of it and saying, well, if you're taking a whole mass of people out of the workforce, how are they going to earn money to buy the products that you're now producing? How are you going to maintain this constant growth economic ideal when there's going to be a whole raft of disenfranchised people who are not going to have the capacity because they won't be able to earn a living wage. And they're scratching their heads going, oh, yeah, we never really thought, thought about that. that. Never really thought about that. You know, we could downsize, we can outsource, we can automate, but we never really thought that the people that we're employing are actually also buying our goods in a roundabout way. So if we if we take a big chunk of people out of the workforce, who's going to buy our goods? Oh, and, oh. and I was stunned that these very senior leaders who have got a track record of, of you know, leadership that go you know, as long as your arm, had never really thought about it in those terms. And so you start to then think, well, this is going to come because you can't stem the, the, the march of technology. It's just going to happen. But how do we reconfigure our economies to pick up those people? And that's the conversation we're also having now. If you take people out of work because of no fault of their own, i.e. lockdown, how are we going to maintain the economy given that they are not going to be able to put money back into the to the economy through rent, through you know, um, you know, feeding themselves, putting their clothes on their on their kids. So we're now starting to have a much more critical conversation around how do we look at how how do how do we look at 
the way that we allow people to live if they've not actually got an, a work as we have we have come to know it. What about you know, providing a, um, a a social you know, wage that you say right? Well, you may not ever work because you we've got to, no we've not we've got no jobs for yeah, you yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that you've got not got the capability. Yeah, there's no work. There's no work yeah. for you because it's been automated. How do we actually capture those people? Because if if there's lots, I mean, there's you know there's all sorts of different um, metrics that identify you know who's going to be displaced, but Last year, it was um, I think it was uh, one third of two thirds of all the jobs in the world could be automated today, and that was last year. And so somebody said, "Well, you know, how do we come to look at finding resolutions for these problems?" And I said, "Well, short of you know a, a major catastrophic event that you know <laughs> that, that basically cuts across all the globe's economies, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work." Then COVID came along, I've gone, oh dear. That was it. <laughs> Here it is. Yeah, that it. <laughs> Remember that yeah. thing I was telling you about? Here that it is. It. Yeah. So so things like automation, the, the very nature of work. What is work actually about? Who does it? So then we've got the diversity piece that comes in to say, well, look, you know, we have to look at not only doing things differently, but we have to look at doing different things with different people. So this this idea of diversity and inclusion has to be amplified. We need to be looking at people that have got different voices and different ideas to bring to the table on how we actually resolve this because what's gone before for the last 50 or so years is not going to serve us for the next. It's definitely not. And it hasn't really worked the problem. Well, it has. No, this is true. Because, you know, whilst you can say, well, globalisation has been really good, it's lifted a lot of people out of poverty, and it has, but it's also made the difference between those who are living on the poverty line and those at the top. That differential has expanded. It's almost infinitum now in its, in its scale. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and of course, in the middle, that's pretty much stagnated. Yes. There's been very little growth yes. in, in, yeah. in that. And, and, you know, when you start looking, talking about generational change, the, you know, we're now looking at a, at a couple of generations that are worse off than their parents. You know, it, there's always been these expectations that subsequent generations will do better than their mum and dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. and this is this is not going to be the case, and we're we're seeing it now. With COVID, there's going to be so many lasting legacies, and we're we're in the we're in the point now where I finally myself going, please let this be one, please let that be a legacy of it, because you really want the, I really want for a better world. Well, I, I don't <laughs> want to go through all this pain and suffering. I mean, I know you can't really compare it to other pains and sufferings of you know, previous generations. But it is. But you think, I don't want to go through all this and not have something come out at the end of it. And if that is a revision to how we actually support our, our most vulnerable, is it that we actually look at our leaders and going, you know what, you're rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do, let, we, we need a different system. Yeah, we need, you know, our, our, and that goes right back to the heart of how democracy actually works. Given that, we're sort of heading towards a post-democracy era because we're running against truth. There's there's no one version of the truth anymore. No. Um, no. So, you know, how do you make decisions around democracy and what's good for the for for the, our broader community when we don't know what's fact from fiction? So there are some really, really big 
you know, hairy, audacious problems that need to be resolved. And if we can use COVID as a as a real spotlight on that stuff, then happy days. But you know, I I I, I do. I think I'm I'm hoping this is a turning point as well. Going back to like the the, the reuse of the urban environment, things like that. Maybe that and and the and and the automation replacing jobs. Maybe it's going to need to be that the future is that there is almost a sector of employment that is created where you are here to look after stuff. You're there for the common good. Common good. And, and it doesn't, and, and, it, and it's not part of this corporate cycle of, no. of profitability. It's just, this is what we need to pay. Yeah. We'll spread it across you as a workforce, and that's all you need to do. The best money I spend now... The best money I spend every month, I donate to the, chat, the Canals and Waterways Trust. And I do that because I live on one. And I can't believe it's free. Mm. It's so nice I pay to walk there. I can't believe it's free. So me and the boy, we walk on this area. And we got stopped one. We've probably been living there a couple of months. We got stopped on the bridge. She, was there. she said, I'm from the Canals and Waterways Trust. I said, oh, yeah, fantastic. What do you do? She said, well, we all volunteer. We maintain this. It's why it looks so good. I was like, where do I sign? Yeah. Like, where do I sign? And I was like, you're all volunteers. I was like, yeah. So how can we volunteer? Can we come and help? You know, so every two months you can go and clear part of the canal. A really good thing to do. We think something about like that should there should be money available for that. And now more than ever, if we're looking at automation, it's like the dispersal of the people. You don't need any skills to do to do that. And actually, there will be lots of people that will be really happy looking after wildlife and maintaining canals. And if in the process of doing that, we are planting trees or doing something that improves the environment, that feels like a great fix from taking automation and implementing it to remove the workforce, but it's going to create wealth and then repositioning that wealth to fix all the stuff that we've knackered. Yeah. And that, that therein lies the, the question of how do you change the fundamental premise of how the economy works? Yeah. Because it has to have a, you have to take a, a real, there has to be a real shift in, in how the money shifts around and, and, and how, or, you know, sort of on a side topic, how organisations are taxed and made to, yeah. to, 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 so I mean, there are some massive organisations in, in the world who are, you know, sort of having a laugh. Um, about the, the amount of money that they're taking out of the market and not putting back in, because it could be a tax, couldn't it? It could be done. It could, it could be, be done. Tax. It could be done through tax. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's been talk about, particularly with the automation thing, is that if you are actually through an organisation that is replacing workers or you know human people with robotic or you know automated mechanisms, then you have to pay the fee to to you know to to enable those people to, to have some other way of either making money or being you know, provided for. Because the, the, the money, the money and I'm not saying that my scenario is ever going to come to fruition, but if I was ever in a position to try and influence, that is the, that is the, a direction that I would like to see as go down. And that's like, if you are using automation to remove jobs, then maybe make the, the, the profit because you're not paying, you're not paying people. somebody, yeah. so it's free money. After the capital, yeah. It's free money forever until someone comes up with a smarter system and then it's even freer money. 
Yeah, I mean, if you strip out a whole heap of cost. Automation is free money. That if you get it right, there's a setup cost, and then ultimately it provides you with free money moving forward if people use it because they pay to automate to save. Yeah. So there's got to be an element of like for me anyway when you look at global warming and like making sure that it's here for our kids uh, and their kids, um, like. Implementing, I know that the government are talking about this green revolution. Mm. But I think that they're looking at this green revolution, it's, it's all about tech. It's all about tech, green tech revolution. Planting some more trees would be a really, really good start. The country would be greener, different places to walk, the air would be cleaner, the flooding won't quite be as so bad. More, I, 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 yeah, it would be, it would be, uh, I think that it's all, it is all doom and gloom right now when you look at like, what COVID's doing to us. But for me, there's the eternal optimism that I have. I'm just sort of like thinking from some of the stuff that I've read online and this and this transfer to the yeah. tech revolution, it's going to bring up these massive questions and these massive things that we need solid leaders to actually go. We are thinking about the health of everybody and the collective health of either planet and the mental health of everybody on it. And if you're automating, that's brilliant, but the profit that you make from automating, keep a bit of it, but a nice chunk of it is going to go back back into the community. Yeah, whatever that looks like. Whatever it looks like. But yeah, and and I think you're right that that COVID has prompted these big questions to be put fair and square on the table. But coming back to your point, it it needs some fresh leadership. And leadership with a big L, not, not leadership you know, some with you know all this charismatic stuff that we've been seeing over the last you know twenty or so years, it has to be solid, capable, distributed, human-based leadership. Yeah. So that completes this episode of Spotlight with. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe, and we'll see you really soon for some more episodes.